episode two. Welcome back. Welcome back to the big run. Thank you for all your lovely responses to our first episode. It's been really great finally being able to share these interviews with everyone. I've absolutely adored sitting down with these individuals over the past couple of weeks. It's great to be finally putting them out there. So for everyone who's tuned in so far, thank you. Today's guest is Spencer Barden. Spencer is a former international athlete himself with well over 30 caps for Great Britain and over a 15-year period he competed at track, road, cross-country events all over the world, including six IAAF World Cross-Country Championships. Spencer now works as Director of Elite Athletes for the London Marathon and was one of the key players in this year's historic 40th race. Spencer was also part of the team that helped a little-known athlete called Eliud Kipchoge break the sub-two-hour marathon record as part of the Ineos 159 Challenge. He has a lot of amazing insight and is a really, really interesting person. Ladies and gentlemen, Spencer Barden. I'd love to kick off, really, with the kind of question I'm asking all of my guests, and that is, where did your sort of love of, of running and athletics really begin? When did the sort of, when did the bug kind of bite for you? Um, when I was pretty young, really, to be honest, I was, um, you know, like most young kids when I was at, you know, sort of nine, 10, 11, I was playing obviously most sports, football, rugby. Um, I wasn't somebody who was, um, you know, then those days, it wasn't really much things or computer games around really. So I was always sort of out, outside and, uh, and I was probably about 10 when I got into to athletics. Um, you know, it was, we used to go to sort of the Cubs and Scouts sort of type thing. And we used to have sort of, you know, regular sort of cross-country um, races at, at weekends. And that's really how I, how I got into it. And then um, I got sort of noticed by one of the, the coaches um, when I was mm-hmm. at one of the sort of, uh, the sort of uh, Scouts or Cubs cross-country events one weekend. And they said, oh, would you like to come on, along to the sort of local club? Um, mm. so I did, and it was obviously very local. It was only just maybe 10 minutes down the road from where I was living. Um, wasn't a, a sort of fancy synthetic track or anything. It was a grass track, uh, mm. on, a, on a school field, um, a good grass track. And, uh, that's really where I started. And, uh, you know, and I was sort of, let's say 10, 10, yeah, probably 10 then at the time. So, and I, it was mainly through cross country initially, mm. um, because that's where I could sort of got, got, uh, noticed when I was very young and, uh, yeah, it went from there really, joined the local club and really sort of, you know, my, my parents weren't weren't really into athletics or anything. My, my, my dad used to play football, uh, mm. you know, sort of uh, local level. Um, but yeah, so and it really went from there, to be honest. So what was your local athletics club then? At the time it was called um, uh, Elliot's, Elliot's AC. So it was in Maidstone in Kent. That's where I grew up. Yeah. And then it changed to, to, to GEC Avionics. Um, um, and I was with them for, for many years until I joined, um, and I was almost 20 years in at, at Belgrave Harriers. Oh, nice. So I joined Belgrave and, uh, now I sort of a life member of, of Belgrave. So, you know, it, it was almost very local, you know, local club when I was much younger. And then obviously when I moved, um, I went to, to Loughborough university, I, I started to move and started to run in for Belgrave because I wanted some more just higher level sort of domestic competition be, be mm. in division one of the British league and everything. So that's when I made the decision to, um, to move to, uh, to join Belgrave. 
So what were your distances then? What were your, what were your specialities distance-wise? Um, mainly <coughs> cross-country I used to love. Um, mm. you know, what was it about cross-country in particular that you loved? I don't know. I think, I think maybe that's where I sort of started from and I just, in, in just enjoyed running through the mud and the fields and everything, really. Yeah. I think I just in, enjoyed that sort of, almost that freedom of running, you know, around parks and fields. And obviously that's where I did like a, a lot of my running as well, was you know, mainly around, around the local parks. So... I just enjoyed that element of of, of athletics. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd never been on a on, on a on a tartan track or synthetic track. A lot of the stuff that we did was on say on a grass track for many many years. Um, it wasn't till I was probably about eleven, maybe twelve, that I went and did my first track athletics track meeting, um, and I, I remember it very well. It was at um, Bromley Athletics Club. I remember warming up in, and I've obviously raced there many times over the years. Mm. But I remember warming up in the fields next to the to the track. I'm not sure if the fields are still there now. Probably most places have been been built on. But mm. um, and then it was an 800 meter race, and I was in a non-scoring race because obviously I'd never run for the club on the track before. And um, we started on the on the curve start, the 800 line, and you know I put my foot on the wrong line. I put my foot on the straight line because I'd never been on a track before. Didn't know <laughs> you put your foot on the on the curve line. You know, I didn't really know how to to race around a track I was probably out in lane three and back in lane one and so lanes up winning the race um and actually running quicker than the guys who had actually ran in the scoring race so Amazing. after that the club uh, um you know introduced me to running in uh, in, in the scoring team and in, in the eight so I was mainly at that age running 800 1500 meters um many many sort of league races and then obviously went on to county championships and won I think the 1500 meters at the county championships and under 13 on, on a cinder track it was a cinder track the track we used we were using then as well mm. uh, wasn't wasn't too many tartan tracks around um so yeah then I started to get into into running on the on the track as well mainly mainly at a young age you know 800 1500 meters because that was the distance mm. um but then at the same time mixing it in with it with the with the cross country as well that kind of progressed and then you went to you went to study at uh, Loughborough and then mm. is that when is that when it started to become really sort of serious for you competitively do you think or was it prior oh, to that? well probably prior to that because I've, i think i got my first international or, or gb vest when i was uh when i was 17 and then i went to the world cross country championships as a junior in 1992 mm. uh, the year paula paula won uh, that year as well in the, in the women's mm. junior race I think the men's senior team was actually third team that year as well. Um, likes of Richard Nerka and Amy Martin were on the team. Mm. Uh, John and Googie won the men's race. Um, and uh, Haile Gabrasassi won the junior men's race, which I was in. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, so that was my sort of first big sort of, um, sort of championships uh, as, as a sort of junior athlete. And then, then that same year, so that was 92. So the summer of 92, um, I made the 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 world junior track championships which was in seoul in, in south korea wow. it was late in the year because the condition was september time and I, I made the final of the world juniors at 5k um ran a ran a pb to get to the final um yeah it was so i think highly won that highly won the, the the 5k that year as well so what's that like then you know is it as a young lad as a teenager being in that kind of environment in that kind of field were you were you daunted at the prospect of that field? Were you, were you, were you excited? What was that like at that age? Um, I think it was probably a little bit of both, to be honest. Obviously, we travelled away from from home and obviously were away for, for a couple of weeks because we were, you know, the other side of the world in, in Korea. So never been to, 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 
to Korea before or even that part of the world to to, to Asia. So, um, but it was also exciting as well because it was, you know, it was, it was great to be going to a big championships. Um, and obviously was there with a lot of the junior athletes, which uh, which I knew and, and obviously competed with during the, during the summer. Um, it was a great, you know, great sort of team environment. You know, as Catherine Mary was running, Darren Campbell was running, Steve Smith was in the high jump. So Paula obviously was running in, in, in the women's 3K. So it was a good group of, of, of junior athletes. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed it. It was obviously, um, yeah, it was obviously quite daunting going into the, into the event itself. And, uh, you know, my ultimate goal was to, to try and make the final. Um, mm. And, and run a run a personal best, which, which I did, and uh, you know, really, really enjoyed the whole experience. And I think I came away from there, really sort of probably more inspired and and determined to mm. to, to to do better. It almost sort of, you know, gave you a almost something, you know, little, little extra sort of uh, focus for the following year. You came off the back; it was a very late championships in September. And I thought, right, you know, I'm really going to. Get, get you know focus on trying to improve myself mm. as as I go into in, into the next year, which was then coming really from a junior, you know, top end junior athlete, and then obviously the following year I was moving into the into the senior ranks. So that was always going to be a big big step, big jump. And what was that like? That sort of transition then into the senior ranks was there a noticeable? Did you feel like there was a noticeable shift when you went into that into that competition? Yeah, there was. It, uh, I think it's like everybody takes a couple of years to make that transition. There wasn't sort of um, there was some under under twenty three sort of international competitions, which when I was a, a young athlete, there was lots of um, let's call them sort of small international meetings um, in terms of you know, countries v countries. So you know there was opportunities to go and race at under twenty three level international competition event against maybe Germany or France or Spain. So there was these sort of and it was there was stuff in the UK. You go stuff in Germany or, or, or Italy or, and Spain. So there was lots of these competitions around, which actually helped to make that transition through from a junior athlete into a into a senior athlete. There was lots of um, you know very good domestic competitions around at the time as well, um, more so than than there are now. Um, so that was also that helped um, as well to make that transition. But it, it did take it did take a few years um, because. You know, and it's hard when you go from being a very good junior, because I was one of the very top juniors, you know, at 5K and, and cross country, and then you almost become one of the the bottom athletes in terms of the senior athletes. You know, you're not the very top, you're not mm. at, at the front of races for for a number of years. So it took a few years to sort, you know, gradually bring my times down so I could be more competitive with um, with the senior athletes. And so, who was coaching you during this period? Then during that transition, who was your coach? Um, so that's so around that time as I started working more with with George Gandhi. Um, oh right. So this was when George, you just you were just at Loughborough at this point then. I just I not started at Loughborough. So what I used to in 92, 93 was the first year I went altitude training. Oh, wow. um, what was that like? It was good actually. So George George used to um, just really arrange get a group of athletes together. And it was some very good athletes, people like John Brown, who used to coach, John Nussel, there was Richard Naroko. Was, so it wasn't all athletes, he was actually coaching. He just was there thinking, right, I want to get a group of athletes to go away and we're going to go altitude training. And we went to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, so George arranged it all. We just had to sort of, pay, yeah, there was no funding around the time. We paid for it ourselves. Um, we were four weeks away at altitude. Um, 
and that helped me really transition as well from being a good junior athlete to a senior because I was training with some of the better you know people like Rob Denmark were there as well so we had a really good group of athletes probably about I'd say no more than 10-15 athletes Um, and we used to go away around sort of the April time spring time and and spend uh, four weeks there just just training hard a lot of mileage (laughs) and that's when I started to increase my mileage um, coming from a junior to a senior I was probably still running I was, I was always quite a high mileage athlete probably mm. running as a junior 70 80 miles a week but as I moved into a senior I was running 100 plus miles a week and I realized mm. that you know people like John Nuttall and, and John Brown those guys who are obviously one of the best seniors that, that we had at the time were running 110 120 mile a week when they were at altitude so mm. I realized then this is what what needed to be done um and we just trained you know really hard for for the four weeks we were there and I learned, started to learn about the altitude training and at the time it was very basic, you know, in terms of what, what we knew about being at altitude and, and the benefits and everything and how you transitioned from coming back down from altitude. What uh, is, what is that process like then when you're first, I'm fascinated by it, the, the, when you're first acclimatizing to altitude, what the first couple of runs when you're out there, what is that process like for your body? I mean, how does it feel to sort of go through that that sort of transition? Yeah, and the, and the, I think the first time we went there, it's a really simple instructions. Take it fairly easy for the first week you're there. Um, keep your heart rate, we used to wear a heart rate monitor uh, when we were training, keep your heart rate, you know, below 150 beats per, per minute as, as you're doing your easy runs. And as you acclimatise um, to, to the altitude, then obviously you can start increasing the training and, and, and doing sort of workouts on the track or, or, or grass, um, you know, on the second, third, and, and then just take in the final week, the last three or four days before you came down from altitude, just ease back on the training and, 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 and take it easy as well before you get come back down to sea level. So there was no real detailed science behind, behind it at the mm. time. Obviously there's a lot more we know now about altitude yeah. training, how you adapt and everything. And, um, but at the time, that's basically what it was. Just take it easy. For even the first couple of days we were there, we never used to really even run. We just used to walk around and just really trying to get acclimatized to the to the time change because obviously we were in the US, eight hours, seven or eight hours time difference, and also just get used to being at altitude. Um, and that's what we used to do. And we used to go every year. And I went every year, mixing between going to Albuquerque and and Boulder, Colorado, oh, with yeah, with, with with George and pretty much a similar super group of athletes. You know, Gary Locke was there, Paul, Paula's husband used to join us as well because George used to coach coach Gary. So, you know, and it became a really good group that came together at that time of year to, to train together. Uh, and we all sort of helped each other and I benefited massively from that. You know, all self-funded and all just a group of athletes led by a great coach in, in George who wanted just to get the best out of the athletes and bring them together. So a, a little bit of context for people listening in. So George Gandhi is, is, is a bit of a legend, really, in coaching, being involved with you know, 10 Olympics, five Commonwealth Games, and obviously having a very famous relationship with Seb Coe. Like, you, when, did you first, when did you first meet George and, and what was it like sort of being coached with him? Like, what was, it, what was his sort of, what was his approach? Yeah, I first met George, so it was around 92, when I realised that there's a group of athletes that were going away training at altitude. And- thought I'd like to do that and um, you know that's when I first sort of started speaking to George and said you know would, would I be able to come along and he said absolutely it'd be great for you this is going so that's when I first got to know George and obviously got to know him pretty well because of spending sort of you know four or five weeks with him at, at altitude camps um, and, and, and talking to him and I just liked his sort of 
philosophy in terms of how he used to uh, set out the gear for his athletes and in terms of it was you know nothing too too complicated in terms of it's very simplistic approach to training obviously the things that he included in training was you know it was famous for his circuit session which he used to do at Loughborough University very basic sort of strength and conditioning weight session the focus of the training was on you know lots lots of volume lots of but lots of lots of sessions that had you could see the progression in the training in terms of you know where you would start out at a certain time of the year if it was a springtime and how you would transition from from, from coming down from somewhere like an altitude where you'd be in a lot of volume, a lot of long sessions and, mm. and building in and including putting speed work into the training as you got into the, into the early part of the, of the track and the, and the summer season. So, and um, I just, I enjoyed the training as well because when I was away at altitude, you know, I did the training with, 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 with George was setting. So George used to set, we tried to, the idea was to try and get the group training together. We didn't want, 15 people going to altitude and everyone mm. off doing their own thing. So the idea was like George would send out the four weeks we were at altitude, the, the, the training that was, 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 was set and you could either join in with it or parts of it or, 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 or adapt some of it. So I used to really just engage with it all and just join in with all, all the training, which was there and, and, and just follow the, the, the program, which George has set which was great. And a lot of athletes did that. People like Rob Denmark, he was coached by his father, but he used to come in for that four weeks and basically do the same training as well. Mm. So um, there was nothing complicated about the training. It was session, there was workouts like 2400s on the track and altitude with minute recovery. There was six by K on the track with 90 seconds recovery, you know, mile, mile efforts on the grass. And so nothing that a lot of athletes aren't doing today, mm. but, it, it worked and it was a very um, methodical approach in terms of the training and how it was, how it was set and how you could see the progression during, during the, um, during the, during the year. So, and I really enjoyed that. And, you know, over the years I got to know George well, you know, initially by going to, to altitude with him and, and then just talking to him. Um, and actually he probably helped my coach that I had back in, back at home where I was still living in, in, in Kent. Um, to, to really develop as well um, because obviously there was lots of things like national coaching days around at the time and we used to bring athletes together and all the coaches together for, for a weekend at, at, at different times of the year to, to, to just basically learn from each other and, mm. and be part of, of almost um, yeah almost as one team really in, in, in a way and uh, you know I know a lot of coaches certainly over the years and certainly currently that worry about their athletes going away to, to training camps or going away with other coaches because they feel the athletes are going to get poached away from them and they're mm. going to start coaching them but that was back in you know back in the 90s and that, that was never the case it was almost like you know and that was never George's George's approach it was always like um you know how can I help you know what advice can I give and, and my coach used to talk to him as well and used to bounce ideas off each other and it wasn't until about 1996 when I decided to make the move to Loughborough that I started working a lot more closely with George and then when I used to sort of go back home I used to work with my coach back home so there's almost this sort of agreement between the two coaches that we would you know when I was in Loughborough I'd follow George's program when I'd come back I would just fit into the program back at back at home and um, and it wasn't until probably 97 when I moved to Loughborough permanently um, started studying in Loughborough then I really worked almost full-time with George 
So I just want to dial back on something you mentioned before. So you, when you were going out to Albuquerque and to Boulder, you were saying that it was all self-funded by yourself. So what were you doing in tangent with your running then? How were you, how were you funding it back, back then? So there was, you know, you used to get things like sort of, there was various grants you could get, maybe some like the Ron Pickering Memorial Fund. Um, you know, I was fortunate that my parents were able to support me um, as well. Um, but, you know, I was at college at the time before I went to Loughborough University to do my sports science um, degree. I did construction management okay. uh, locally where I live. So I did a four-year construction management course. Um, so I was, you know, I was doing a little bit of part-time time work here and there as well. Um, but, you know, it used, to, it used to cost us, I don't know, probably, it was probably around about £1,000 to go for four weeks altitude training at the time, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, it was like, it was all self-catering. That, you know, we, 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 didn't, we, weren't, we didn't have physios there or anything like that. We just basically had a group of athletes mm. going. We used to get self-catering um, accommodation. Um, and, um, yeah, we used to, you know, cheap flights, um, probably about three or four stops to get to, to Albuquerque. Um, <laughs> but, but it was, and it was great. And we, and we all did that. There was no lottery funding that there is now and everything and, uh, for the athletes. It was all just, um, yeah, the athletes themselves and, and getting the money together. And, and George organized it all. He, he booked all the flights and the accommodation and we just, away we went. So Amazing. Um, Amazing. What an experience to have as well. And, and with, with working with George, in terms of, obviously, you were saying like his, his the sort of sessions that you were doing were, you know, the kind of sessions that athletes are doing today for sort of standard, but obviously fairly tough and challenging but did he also work with you in terms of the mental side of competition sort of mentally preparing was there anything that he had specifically that you learned from him in terms of that side of things yeah I think I think so I think um I'm I'm sure I did but you know not 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 in a formal sense I think it was Mm. just more I think um you know the the way the way George approached the the, the, the sort of the races um in terms of how the training was set so it was very much in terms of like we're using this type of race as part of our, our training progression in training rather than you know this is our ultimate goal this is our our focus for the season if it would be a going to a championships if it be a national championships or, or global championships and, and at what the what the sort of the route was to get there um mm. i think that's what i learned mentally like the the most important element was the the end goal in terms mm. of what what you were focusing on and anything in between was okay it's 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 work it's a progression towards that um and if there was a sort of a, a blip along the way then that was fine but it wasn't focused every every race we went into it wasn't it, it wasn't 100 percent focused on this is so important you need to win this race we need to run this this particular time it was almost a progression to get to, to what we was trying to achieve for, for that for that season and that was a, a different approach than I had as a younger athlete because almost every every race you went into, it was almost you went into it almost 100%. And mm. now, you know, this was, uh, this I need to win this race, so I want to run this time. And then you move to the next one and try and do the same thing. Where from a, and that was quite tiring mentally yeah, during, a, during, a, during a, a, a cross country or a, or a track season. But... The, the approach that George had was, was was different in terms of you were, you selected the right races at the right times of the year and and used them to to progress during the season. If it was doing some under distance events earlier in the season, 
just to just to get some leg speed turnover uh, r- rather than focusing on the on your on your main event, which would have been maybe at the, at the key part of the season, at the height of the season, going into the actual actual championship it, itself. So, do you think that sort of that compartmentalising that he was he was doing with that, just sort of seeing individual races leading up to the main objective as kind of stepping stones, allowed you to almost detach yourself from those individual events and, and sort of have a sort of greater relaxation around them, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think it just, it just gave you, um, allowed you to really focus more on what your, 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 your main purpose was for, for the season. It just, you almost went into those, those other events or races a lot more relaxed in terms of what you, was, you, were, well, you were trying to get something from them, but, but there, was a, there was a purpose to it. For, for those events and in and where that led to so I think it, it just allowed you to um, prolong the season um, because obviously from you know it's it's like everything it, physically and mentally it, it, it's very tiring um, yeah if you have a long long season in, in any, any sport but it allowed you to really um, you know focus on it on extending that season as well um, because you know you weren't using up all your energy um, you know at the, at the wrong time of, of the year in terms of you know wh- where you were if it was a summer season or or in on the in the cross-country season in the winter because you know like some athletes obviously just run during the summer season and they just attract athletes and that's it they don't really do an indoor season they don't do a, a cross-country season where I was always you know summer season was obviously for, for track I did do some indoor not a lot but occasionally ran some indoor but obviously that for me the winter season so from Sort of, you know, finish the summer season in September time, and then by October, November, I'm getting ready and running cross country in the winter till around sort of March time when when the World Cross was, and then I'm transitioning, maybe going to altitude, and then get myself ready for the summer season. So, you know, it's almost pretty much twelve months months of the year. So you needed to be in a position where there was a different focus mentally on on different elements of 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 the of the racing at certain times of the year to really be able to be in a position to be competitive from, you know, from the, from the start of the season towards to the end of the season, which yeah. obviously to the championship. A whole year of, com- of, of competing. Yeah. To, you, you'd have to be able to, to break it down to be able to sort of be able to approach that from a mental point of view. So, so you're working with George now at, at Loughborough University. So what you, you you were saying before that your relationship, you sort of start to work with him a bit closer now. So what kind of things are you starting to do with George whilst you're sort of studying at Loughborough University? Well, I started then, so I'd never really done any strength and conditioning work before. Um, okay. You know, so I, I, I worked with George on on his, you know, his sort of weights, strength and conditioning program, which, which we had, which was, again, nothing too... Um, complicated, very simple, and probably very similar to some of the stuff that, that Seb was doing back when mm. when, when he was uh, a Loughborough as well. So, very much George was one for you know, keeping the same program which had worked. It mm. makes them find sort of tweak it slightly, but he was very much the person. This this actually works. Why would I want to change it? Yeah. You know, it's work, and uh, and that was a, a, a good approach to to have. And, and then we I started doing the sort of circuit training. Which George was very famous for on the on the Wednesday evening. So, Big what was a typical tra- circuit training session with him on a Wednesday? Well, it was there was a lot of people. There was probably best part of I'd say maybe a hundred people in a in a in, a in the, gymnasium. In the same session. Yeah, 
Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and we were different stations, all set up. We'd be in groups, and you just work away around the circuit. And George would be blowing the whistle, and it might be thirty seconds on and twenty off, or something on certain exercises. And that, that would sort of progress. You know, it start that would normally start around the sort of September time, probably around sort of Aprilish, March, April time. Um, and the, and the sort of the circuits would progress, and in a way uh, become much harder as the as, mm. as as you went through the season. So that was two elements I included which I hadn't done before working with George and then obviously I started to do a lot more tempo threshold mm. running with, with with George which I'd not done much of before so that was something else that I started to, to, to bring into the training but also a lot more in terms of recovery running as well you know a lot of athletes get hooked on running a, a particular pace and everyone's different because everyone trains in a slightly different way but I learned some of that when I was away at altitude that some of the morning recovery runs are very slow in terms of the you know the starting pace and, and I know a lot of athletes I've, I've been to a number of times now to, to to Kenya and seen the Africans train obviously been on training camps where, where Mo's been there and others and you know they're quite happily starting off their runs at eight or nine minute mile in for the first mm. couple of miles and gradually increasing the pace and and that's one of the things I learned is that it's not all about going out the door and, and running at your pace. You want to run at whatever it might be at straight away. It's just gradual building into the pace or, or having some recovery. And I think rest and recovery was, was one of the key elements, which I'd learned as well from George. That was re- really important to, uh, to build that into to, to the training as well, especially when you're training, you know, as I was pretty much twice a day, most days. So, an hour and a half, two hours on a, on a Sunday morning on a, on a long, long run. Um, all those new elements that, that were built into the training program were, were things that I, I learned from and worked with, with George and over the years. And, yeah, we got to know each other, um, you know, much better in terms of he knew what, what I was in terms of, of an athlete and how I was developing and what some of the sessions that really sort of started to, to work for me. Um, and also, which helped develop me as, a, as an athlete at, at certain times of the season and, w- and what, what I needed to get that trigger to, to ensure that was ready for, for the races that were coming up. And in terms of the races, sort of looking back at your, your competitive career, are there particular, particular races or particular events that you really hold as like key? Yeah, I think there's always lots of, you know, going to championships is always, you know, great. And obviously, you know, most of my stuff was say on, on the sort of cross country, you know, running at six, six world cross country championships. Yeah, was was always um, a, a great experience. Extremely tough. Yeah, it's got has to be one of the toughest races in the world because you've got athletes running from fifteen hundred meters right up to sort of you know marathon distance, all 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 coming in on you know one race. So very best athletes in in the world at the time, and uh, it was always a, a a great experience. And it was very difficult also to make those teams as well because it was you know it was, it was like it is for any British team going to a championship. It's never easy to. To, to make a team so they're always sort of hold sort of special memories in terms of um you know that, that experience and you know i was fortunate enough not to really have any any injuries or serious injuries when mm. i was competing um and to be honest i put that down to doing a lot of my early years certainly from the age of probably 10 to about 16 on a, i trained on a grass track i didn't use a tartan track to train really? synthetic track all everything i did was on the grass track uh, at my local club I think it just made me a much stronger athlete. And I think, you know, it was that, that I'm sure now I'm, I'm pretty convinced that that's what enabled me to, to go through a, a long career with, without really having, yeah, of course, like anybody get a little niggle here and there, but mm. nothing, 
you know, never had any sort of stress fractures or anything like really? that at all. Wow, that's amazing. Which, yeah, I think, you know, I was always a strong, because cross country was where I sort of came from as a young athlete. Mm. And I never moved away from that. I always did cross country in the winter. I always did a lot of my runs off road on, on local parks. Um, you know, I was fortunate that just a couple of miles from where I used to live was a, was a great park to train on. I did most of my runs there when I was when I was uh, a, a young athlete before I moved to to, to, to Loughborough so uh, yeah I'm, I'm pretty convinced that that was one of the the reasons for not having any injuries during my my early career. So flip side to the previous question then were there any races in your career that went really badly that taught you something invaluable do you think were there any sort of like bad races where it didn't quite work where things went wrong that you sort of really took something from yeah i think so i think um there's there's certain races which i didn't do as well as i wanted to or or even would have not finished um because i think i think i got to the stage where i learned that you you had to ensure that you was you was recovered and ready to 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 to, for, for racing um i think you know one of the mistakes that I did make a few times was that I probably trained too hard mm. um, at, at times. Um, when you say too I, hard, what do you mean? Like uh, too much mileage, too much, too much yeah, sort of tempo maybe work? Too, or... too much mileage, maybe you know, pushed it too much in one of the, one of the sessions that I was doing and almost became a sort of, you know, a great trainer in terms of, yeah, was, I think it was going great in training, but when I couldn't transition that to, to, to racing mm. and I think, you know, I've probably done too much, focused too much on 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 the on the workout and and the session that I was doing, and not on the race that was coming up, and mm. probably just did, did just went a step too far in the training, mm. and just o- overcooked it a bit. And the time I got to the race, oh, I knew I was in great shape. Actually, I just left it all on the training track. Right, right, and and then you know maybe a week or two later when I eased back and and took some recovery. Then I was in. I was you know running fantastic, racing fantastic again. So there, there are a couple of things which I, I learned along the way. Is that you know, and, and there were certain times of the year where you train through races, and athletes do that today. They they train through a race and use that as part of a preparation, which was very much like, like I said that you know you you pick the races during the season, and some of those almost uh, part of the the sort of transition as you get towards the main main event during the season. But then after that, I made sure that I was always. Um, just making sure consciously easing back mm. uh, as I was, as I was coming into to, to racing. So make sure I, I was fresh. You almost feel like you're a bit, I suppose like yeah, when anyone, when they're tapering for, for a marathon, mm. you know, you, you just got to make sure that you, 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 you want you don't want to be sitting, you've been running lots of miles or lots of training for weeks and weeks. And that's just, just even gen, general public, you, you know, a lot, lot, lot of running and you're ready, but you know, the, the, the few days or week or so before the event, you've really got to ease back mm. and, and make sure you're fresh and ready. But that's hard to do mentally because you think, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to be unfit. I'm not going to be ready to do mm. this race because I've, I'm, I'm stepping back and, and, and doing less when I've been doing all this training. I should be doing the same. And that's, uh, and that's completely the wrong approach. You just really need to let the training and everything you've been doing come through. Mm. And the way to do that is just to, to really taper in and, and ease back. And that goes for the very elite athletes. Two athletes are just doing, you know, if it's, it's, if it's local club events or if it's a, a, a local road race or whatever it might be. I think mm. if you want to get your best out yourself, then, of course, you, you're training and you're training with, if you're, with your local club or a group of people you go training with on a regular basis. But 
you just got to make sure that you know if, if it's a particular event that you're really focusing on to do a, a personal best time or something then to get the best out of yourself you need to just give your, your body enough time to, to mm. recover so you're ready for that for that event and that race it is difficult i think you know coming from a very much an amateur level of myself i did the um did the virtual uh marathon on october oh, 4th great. yeah and, great yeah, um, yeah. We'll come to that. Um, we'll come to that later. But that two-week period leading into it, where you know the plan was yep. saying take time to taper, it is, it is a bit of a, a psychological challenge to to almost let go of everything that you've been doing for the previous twelve weeks because you need that. I felt that I needed that sort of physical affirmation of feeling like my body had constantly been worked thoroughly prior to going into the race. Letting you know, the foot off the gas for the sort of yeah, twelve yeah, days leading yeah. in felt felt so strange it is a real a yeah. real shift yeah it, it is it is um so it's um but it's it, and it's sort of it, it's it's very much a, a mental thing as mm. well because you know you, you you need to um you feel like oh, okay, okay we're doing all this great great training and everything but yeah what why should i why should i be you know doing less as i'm as mm. i'm coming towards the the event and i think you know you, you you only you only learn that when things go wrong because if things go right and go okay, you think, well, fine, I'm doing the right thing, and that's I should be doing that. But it doesn't always work that way, and I think mm-hmm. you have to find everyone has to find what works for them. Mm-hmm. Every, everyone, everyone is different um, in terms of if it's you know the mileage they do, you know the, the different workouts that they that, that they may do that work for them, and how they prepare both physically and mentally for for an event. Mm-hmm. Um, be it be if you're if you're an amateur. Or you're at the very top, at the very very elite end of the sport. So speaking of transitioning, then from from going from race mode uh, from training into race mode, you had obviously a transition from your professional career into sort of the job that you occupy now. So you were you started working with British Athletics was that about two thousand and two? Is that right? Roughly about yeah, two thousand and two. Yeah, but you were was... still competing up until about yeah. two thousand and five. So what was that? That's right. What was that period then? That sort of three year period for you, sort of slowly letting go of, of competing and moving more into orchestrating as it were, what was that transition mm. like? Yeah, it was, it's, it's interesting. So I, I decided that obviously, I, you know, I, I love working in, in, in athletics and I enjoyed you know, being an athlete. So I wanted to almost see how I could, and it was like, there wasn't a huge amount of jobs around in terms of um, working in, within the sport. And uh, I, I didn't think I would, I wanted to be a coach. I wanted to be more of an administrator within within the sport. Mm-hmm. So and I thought that you know I'd, I'd obviously worked you know done my degree in sports science. I'd, I'd, I'd done a degree or well, sort of a, a higher diploma in, in construction management. So in terms of my approach to things, it's quite methodical um, mm-hmm. in terms of and that's quite well organised. So I thought that it'd be a good administrator within within the sport rather than actual standing on the side of a of a track. Um, or, or a field somewhere, and actually coaching yeah. a, a, a group of athletes. So, so I started. With, there was um, at the time, UK Athletics were organising coach education courses in each of the regions. There was a region in East Midlands where, where I was living, obviously in Loughborough, and there was a coach administration job working with UK, which was basically organising coach education courses for aspiring coaches in in the region. So I used to sort of, you know be the person that people would apply to sign up for a coaching course on. Um, mm. And I would pull that together, organize the, the tutor. We had a pool of tutors that we used to, used to, to, um, to use. And I would book the facility um, and organize at the, at the weekends coach education courses um, 
for 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 the aspiring coaches from all from the local clubs in the region. Um, and I was doing that as I was doing that, a position also came up in the southeast as well. Mm. So they wanted somebody to cover the southeast. So I ended up doing the East Midlands and and the southeast because obviously I used to live there and knew a lot of the clubs and mm. and everything. So um, so I did that for probably three three years. And it was great because I could still train. It was only part-time. Mm. Uh, I, was do- I was doing it working from home. Yeah, I enjoyed that. That was almost, I saw that as almost a step into the door, you know, in terms of working for yeah. for the British Federation. I, yeah, I wasn't sure that was it going to end up working for the British Federation, you know, full-time or anything. But that was almost, there's, this was my first step mm. into working within in the sport. It was 2005 when I applied for a full-time position within New Catholics. There was, um, there was some development. Um, positions one for endurance one for sprints i think one for one for field events and um, i i and i was working with with alan story who was the sort of the head endurance coach at the time working with with the federation so i applied for the job and got the job and i think i started around sort of november time in in 2005 and that's where i worked with um basically within within the whole of the UK, organising um, endurance development days for, for athletes, looking after teams when they were going to the, it's called the off-track championships, so things like the European cross-country championships, world cross-country championships. So I acted as sort of the organiser and the team manager for, mm. for those teams um, going, going to championships. And do you think when you were starting in this role, do you think you were drawing on all of that experience you'd had as a, as a young lad, you know, when you were in South Korea, sort of watching all of these events being orchestrated, do you think that at a subconscious level you were absorbing that information, you know, now you're sort of starting to put it into practice, working professionally within the field? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, you learned so much, as I say, subconsciously that you, when you went into that role and you started going to, <coughs> to championships, I almost sort of saw it through, an, a, a sort of an, an athlete's eye yeah and i think oh well, this is uh, if i was an athlete i wouldn't want to do it that way i, I want to mm. do it that way we we wouldn't want that hotel because yeah. it, you, you can't run from that hotel we would win this hotel it might not be a five-star hotel but it's the best hotel because it's best located to the course and so i think those little things like that i was able to draw upon mm. um you know and also organizing you know, training weekends uh, with the, with the national event coaches at the time. You know, I was all able to organise and, and, and pull a program together, working with the coaches because they understood where I was coming from because I've been an endurance athlete at a, at a, at a good level. There was also a, an element of respect there as well. It wasn't like somebody else coming in from maybe outside the sport who didn't understand how how it was working. It was almost that you know mutual respect for for each other in terms of working with the the various coaches and obviously the athletes as well because you know i'd only sort of really just just sort of finished competing so the athletes that were still competing actually knew knew me as well as an athlete as well as a you know somebody working within the sport as well and that shift then when you you sort of just crossed over to the other side of the fence as it were and you'd sort of stopped competing was was there was there little sort of pangs of of missing it a little bit when you were were on that side or were you were you ready to sort of let go by then or was it was that a difficult transition I suppose is what I'm asking yeah I I wouldn't say it was I think I was ready for it um I think obviously we're still pretty much running every day Mm. um just you know more more for, for for pleasure than keeping fit than anything um I think I was ready not to be in that sort of competitive environment I was ready to sort of move away from that, even though I still wanted to to, to go out running and and everything. So no, I think it was at the right time. I think the next the next transition would have been if I'd have stayed as an athlete, would have been moving up probably to to sort of the, the marathon distance as an endurance athlete. But I didn't really have a strong desire 
to do that, I thought, you know, the time was right now to start. And, and the opportunity presented itself as well. Yeah. I think that was the other thing. It's like, you know, it was, a, it was an opportunity here to come and work within the sport uh, in, a, in a full-time position in an area with endurance, which I obviously, you know, was very passionate about. And I thought, well, this is probably too good an opportunity to, to pass by. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't something that I felt I could do as well as, you know, training twice a day, almost like a full-time athlete and, and working full-time as well. You know, this was the right time now to, to mm. you know, start my almost working career, really. Yeah. To, to be honest, you know, at the age of, what, I think, 32, not many people have been able to not really start work full-time until they're 32 years of age. So mm. I was quite lucky in that sense. And I thought, right, this is the time now to, to really focus on my, my career and, and obviously just step back from being a, really an athlete or competitive athlete. So you, so you sort of stepped back from athletics and then started full-time in 2005. So you getting more and more involved with, uh, with events and stuff like that. And then you sort of went and set up your own, your own company and started sort of consultancy services, working on sort of specific events and then built over a period of 15 years. And then you've been involved in some incredibly high profile events that I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on obviously involved in the London marathon that's just cut just gone and we'll get onto that in a minute but I'd love to know a little bit about what it was like working on the Ineos breaking two with Kipchoge so what was your specific role in that project um it's interesting because it was it, it came um pretty much in around the February time of of, 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 um, of the year of the events to last year that we and I was working at London marathon at the time as well and we got approached by Ineos. They were looking to, you know, obviously Nike had done the break into a couple of years previous to that. And uh, Ineos were interested. Is it, could could we get involved? Could we be part of this? You know, we'd like to sort of see if we can get this two hour, two hour marathon. So we talked to, to Ineos and uh, we, we we met with them and uh, talked it through. And I said, look, you know, at the end of the day, probably the only athlete really to do this at the moment have a chance of it is is Elliot. We we spoke to Elliot's management team to see if something that was that was, was interested in still to, to have another attempt at this. And and they were, um, they were really keen. And you know, in all honesty, they they were looking for somebody else or a new backer to come in because Nike weren't going to go and plough loads of money into it for a second time. Mm. So they needed another investor and. Uh, Jim and, and, and his company were, were keen to, to play that part. So this was a February time. I'd met with, with Elliot and, and the Ineos team at, at Jim's office in, in Monaco um, around the time of the, the Laureus Awards, mm. um, which were in Monaco, which is around that, that's February time. Yeah, the contract was done with Elliot a, a few weeks after that. And uh, then the team was put together to, to really um, break this, break these two hours. And, uh, it was a it was a good team. So it was a London Marathon staff, which were involved. Some of the staff there, led by Hugh Brasher, who's obviously the the event director for London Marathon. Ineos at the time were were working closely with what was Team Sky, and that's now obviously now yeah. Team Ineos. So Dave Dave Browsford was was part of that. So Dave Dave came in as part of the team and was the CEO for the project. Mm. So it was great working with with someone you know like like Dave. And uh, yeah, we've got all these experts in from from various areas. Um, we even worked with. Formula One McLaren to look at the the, the um, 
the aerodynamics of the um, setup for the pacing formation and everything. Oh, wow. So, so uh, what, that, what was that? What was that process then? How, how did that feed into what yeah, you did? Yeah, well, we had like we set up like a well, we set up like a performance team uh, of experts, and um, we looked at all the elements that were were key to to, to breaking the, the the two hours. Obviously, we worked closely with Nike as well because obviously Elliot was a was a, a Nike athlete. Mm. So uh, obviously, there was there was lots of learnings from the from the Nike. It was it was important to to, to 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 gain from from their experience and and all the learnings that we we could uh, gather from from what went went on on there. So, um, but yeah, it was we we just knew that we um, yeah it was it was a we're talking about sort of seconds here in terms of what mm. you know what what Elliot you know missed it by twenty five seconds or so when he was yeah. in in Monza. So we had to find that twenty odd you know twenty five seconds or more and. Uh, we looked at all aspects. We were a big search in terms of, of, of the course. Um, mm. You know, obviously, yeah, we were keen, or Jim was certainly keen to have it in, in London. Um, and we looked at all sorts of the venues. Um, Did you look at the the St James's Park Loop as well? Was that a potential? That was one. That was one of that was one that was one of the, the key mm. loops. I think one of the one of the determining factors was we needed to have we needed a, a course which was as flat as possible mm-hmm. with uh, as, as fewer turns as possible. But we wanted something where we could hold the race up for a few days if we needed to, if the weather conditions weren't weren't optimal. And that was one of the difficult challenges with the St James's Park loop because it's on public roads yeah. and having the mail and everything blocked off for a period of days was was almost impossible. So we looked at other courses, of course, in, in Battersea Park, a few other venues. We almost did a, a worldwide search uh, of, of, of suitable venues. And we, and we came up with this um, venue in, in Vienna, which we knew was lots of long straights, very few turns. The conditions at that time of year were, were going to be pretty good based on all the all the data that we gathered. Um, so what weather so, conditions was it that you were looking for in particular? What were the optimal, because you were saying about not being able to hold it sort of three or four days if you didn't have the right, was it temperature, wind, humidity? What temperature, everything, temperature, wind, humidity. We, we were looking for everything. You know, the temperature ideally was somewhere around about 10, 10 11 degrees, hmm. um, and, you know, pretty much zero wind. And of course, that was, um, you know, the weather condition needed to be stable that time of year. We didn't want, you know, lots of rain and, and, and everything. So, and we knew that that potentially was a was an area where we we could ensure that we probably you know within a, a few days window get the optimal weather conditions mm. and obviously then the course we wanted a course that we could hold and and, and block off for you know a week ten mm. days if we needed to and something that that offered us um, a course that was really flat and with lots of long straights which which we had and uh, with very few turns you know we made modifications to the course we did some resurfacing of of, of the course as well mm. we did some tweaks to the some of the turns uh, so they were a lot smoother um, and how were you doing is that with how you were placing the barriers what were you what were you doing to make the turns smoother yeah we were doing, doing some sort of modica- modifications to the surfacing uh, the, the way that we, we sort of the course was measured and, and the way that the, everything was set up in terms of the racing line as well. Um, mm. And obviously we had these, as you, as you probably recall, we had these sort of the pace car with the lasers, projecting mm. the lasers onto the road as well. And that really only worked on straight roads because you couldn't have those lasers projected on the ground when you were going around a turn. So the lasers were switched off. So you almost had to create this sort of almost racing lane um, around the turns for the athletes to sort of try and maintain that formation. Sort of apex of the corner almost. Yeah, yeah, because you were going around sort of roundabouts at, at each end. And 
yeah, as soon as they came off the roundabout back onto the straights again, the lasers came back came back yeah. on the car and yeah, we were trying to train the paces. So they the obvious thing is for athletes to almost try and speed up as, as when they've got nothing in, in front of them in terms mm. of a, a, a gauge or something to follow. But we had to train them to when they came off the turn, they'd obviously just really maintain that same tempo. And the lasers came back on, and they were in this, almost the same position as they were when they when they went into the turn. Um, you were responsible for putting together that group of paces, right? You so you yeah. were picking those elite athletes. So, what was it that you were looking for in those athletes that you put together t- to make sure that they would be the right people for the job for this world-breaking attempt? Yeah, so we were looking for you know we needed a team of pacemakers um, because obviously we had various sort of pacing groups because athletes were coming in and coming out mm. in terms of how the formation worked and uh we had a team captain every group so i was looking for i was looking for a range of athletes some some athletes were some of the best 1500 meter runners in the world people like the inca britsons to mm. so some of the best world you know it was there was two four two five marathon athletes in that pacing group as well as you know athletes have been on the track at the world championships that year running at 5k 10k you know, so there's a whole range of athletes from 1500 meters right through to marathon. So I needed people that were, could communicate exceptionally well. So a selection of the team captains in each pace group were key. You know, people like Bernard Legat, you know, great, great communicators, experienced individuals that you knew they would be ideal for that sort of position. And also athletes that we knew could, you know, just come in to do a short bit of pacing to come out and come back in again. But also others that could, could be within that group and be stable for 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 up to sort of you know even 10 kilometers mm. rather than coming out every maybe four or five kilometers so and we mixed we had a um, pre um training sort of group or, or a session prior to to the main event itself so maybe about a month or so before six weeks before we all gathered in in, in vienna didn't have all the paces at the time because obviously it was over 40 paces so difficult to to get 40 athletes together yeah. parts of the world together at any one time especially in the middle of the summer season when you know, we still had a world championships, um, which was obviously late September, early October in, in Doha. So the key thing was we started to learn, learn the pacing formation because it was a formation that had never been used before. It's just mm. almost an open, open V, but all the data and all the information that we got from the wind tunnel testing was this was going to be the optimal formation to, to protect Elliot throughout the So did you the take the elite athletes into a wind tunnel then to get that data? No, we, we, we didn't. We used, um, we used some non-elite athletes to do some actually sort of um, field testing. Nice. Um, so we, when we, and we, we looked at that, we were using drones and photography and everything else, video uh, images. And then obviously within the wind tunnel itself, we used almost like life, life-size sort of almost dummies in a way. Okay. So, okay. So positioned them in a way so that we, we could see what, what, how that was, how that, how that formation was going to work in terms mm. of the resistance and how it was going to protect Elliot. So it almost put Elliot in a, almost like a cocoon in a way. Mm. Um, and at the time we, we wrestled with it because it was very much, wasn't a real traditional formation because I, very much, if, if you know, when you're looking at pacing, it's very much people following each other mm. or almost like an arrowhead type formation. So I think it, it, it took some convincing, especially for, us who've been in the sport and working in the sport uh, and, and, and knew the sport very well and almost like a, a scientist or somebody saying look this is the best way to, to, to do this so but once we'd you know uh, and I was worried that it was going to take some time because we didn't have a lot of time with these athletes to do the do the testing you know longer than we thought for them to really um, get a feel for this formation 
but actually in all honesty it didn't it did after maybe a couple of days right we'd, we'd really nailed the formation and, and athletes were starting to understand how it was going to work and how they needed to position themselves on the road and then by the time we got to the yeah we got to vienna before the main event uh, maybe a week before and we spent two or three days with all the paces together and we played around with the pacing groups we started to look at individuals like you'd be better in this group and we moved so we were changing all the time and then you know pretty much the the, the day before um we were we were pretty confident that we'd got the right group of athletes together we got reserve athletes as well because people were injured yeah. or people came out and then we we knew that we got the team captains pretty much finalized and uh you know everyone was confident and, and comfortable with the with the formation that we were running the key thing was after that was bringing the athletes in and out at certain times mm. so, so were you, you practicing having, that were you drilling that with, yeah. the, with the guys yeah, so we basically had the four four paces at the front, two on each, each side, uh, one pacer directly in front of Elliot, um, one pacer, uh, and then sort of two paces directly behind Elliot on, on either side. So, mm. um, and we didn't change the, the whole group every every lap. We changed elements of of the group. So it was maybe that we changed the front two paces to start with because they were the ones obviously taking the the, the brunt of the resistance yeah. and we're going to get tired more. We wanted to reduce the time that we were changing the pacer directly in front of Elliot to not distract him as much. So mm. he was the, he was the pacer that was likely to stay in for the, for the longer period right, because obviously we didn't want to, and the ones at the back were the ones probably getting the easier ride because they were following so they could stay in and we changed them every, every couple of laps as well. So it, it worked really well. We had a, a team changing the paces at the front, somebody cha- changing the team captain and then two people changing the paces at the back. So we had, you know, five people changing the paces, <sighs> working as, as as a team. It wasn't a case of one person saying they're in and they're out. And we just were monitoring it as well. If somebody was starting to get tired, we got that communication, so we could maybe make a switch earlier than we than we needed to. So, um, so where were you was, on the day then, in terms of getting that information re- relayed? Where where were you in relation to that? And were you were you calling that those kind of decisions? If you could see that someone was starting to flag a little bit, were you kind of saying, okay, we need to switch this round? Yeah, well, we had um, um, Valentine Tro, who was um, uh, Elliot's manager. He was out right. on, on the course, on the bark. He, he was the one handing the drinks across to Elliot yeah. when he needed it. So he was the one communicating back to us to say that, yeah, everything's good here or ex-athlete is maybe getting tired gotcha. if you look to switch them over. So then, so we had a transition zone, which was just past the, the finish line, mm. which was obviously you know on the main straight of, of, of the course. And we had a zone there. So we knew that, and we actually marked out the zone. So when the, let's say the two front athletes had got to a marker on the road, that was their key to come out of, of the formation. Right. And then another 20 meters or so down the road was the point that we were holding the next two pacemakers. And when the, when the group had reached a certain mark on the road, that was our point to, to allow them to come in. So we didn't want athletes tripping over each other. Yeah. That was the key thing. And we wanted a smooth transition. So, you know, I was sort of managing that transition zone area with, with the team of staff we had there to make sure that then we had staff in, in the athlete area when they were ready to bring the, bring the next team of paces out mm. at a certain time. Um, because we had you know, altogether 40, 40 pacemakers or 41 pacemakers wow. with, with reserves as well. It was, it was quite a, a complex process, but it was, it was one of the key elements in terms of Elliot breaking the, in the two hours. There was obviously so many important, you know, 
elements of, of the event itself in terms of yeah, the course, the laser support and, mm. and everything else that we'd, we'd done. But um, yeah, everything was covered in, in so much detail. I'm not saying it would have, would have been impossible to because Ellie had to, had to run the two hours, but it was, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd done everything we could to put Ellie in the it, best yeah. position. Yeah, 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 yeah. We couldn't, we couldn't have done, I don't think, anything else to, 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 to get to where we'd, we, we were. And, uh, you know, if you think back, Nike spent almost 18 months, two years planning the break-in too. Mm. We had the best part of six, seven months. Incredible incredible and 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 managed to make history and then you kind of went from one history making epic race to to one this year as well given the sort of current landscape with with covid there wasn't much hope of any kind of competitive racing sort of happening at all yet yourself and all the team at uh, the london marathon events managed to make the elite race happen miraculously and I watched it. I took part in the virtual as well, along with 45,000 other individuals and then watched the the coverage on the day. I mean, what was that journey like for, for you and the team from when you sort of had cancelled the mass participation event to, to what ended up happening on the, on the 4th of October with the elites? Cause that was, that was quite a quick turnaround and you were at one point trying your, your darndest to actually let the mass participation event go ahead with, with sort of COVID prevention measures in place, weren't you? Yeah. If you, if you go back even further, really, the, you know, the, the field for the, for the race in, in April was, was pretty much confirmed. It wasn't, mm. yeah, it wasn't until sort of March time that we may, had to make that decision to postpone the race. And uh, <clears throat> at the time was, we was hoping that, you know, we could still do the mass race uh, on, on the traditional marathon course. Um, but we knew as time went on that that probably wasn't going to be um, an option. Um, and we had to start to look at alternatives because, you know, for, from, from London Marathon's point of view, we, we wanted to, 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 to put this event on. And yeah. um, we looked at all different types of, of scenarios and, uh, you know, it's worked very closely with, with um, you know, the local authorities, the, the, the government, Public Health England to, to, to ensure that we could actually, you know, do something. And, you know, mm. we, we were really, you know, still trying at, at one point to, to put on a mass type of race um, with, you know, various sort of social distancing measures, COVID restrictions in, in place. But in the end, that obviously, you know, wasn't possible to do that. And that's how we ended up coming with, with the, obviously the, the virtual event, which was great, you know, 45,000 people signing up to do the virtual uh, marathon, which was, which was fantastic. So, but yeah, and then we, you know, we, we knew then, you know, as, as things were progressing that we couldn't put this elite race on, on the traditional marathon course because you know, the danger of spectators and, yeah. and everything else. So that's, that's why, and obviously we'd looked at this the course in, in St. James's Park, which is obviously, you know, along Birdcage and onto the Mow is obviously the, the final stages of the traditional marathon course in London. We, we opted for the, St. James's Park Loop. It was far from ideal because it was a multi-laps, you know, 20 lap course, which is obviously what, it, it's not what marathon athletes are, are used to doing. But um, yeah, we worked hard to get the course, get the course agreed. And in the end, you know, it was, it, it ended up being a fantastic event. Um, mm. You know, obviously there's lots and lots of work, you know, all the various COVID restrictions and, uh, you know, the testing and bringing the athletes in as well. It was all all part of that process um, to get the, the agreement that we could could host the event and uh, you know eight, eight hours on on BBC TV and uh, you know it was just um, it was just great that we were able to 
to deliver um, such a an important and, and, and high profile event. You know, the only world marathon, major marathon yeah. that was delivered in the autumn. We could have easily, you know, not held the event this year and, and you know, yeah. waited till to twenty twenty one. But you know, we um, we were really determined and uh, to, to really make this event event happen. And uh, oh, and we're and we're so glad and pleased that we did because it, you know, other than the weather, <laughs> which was against <laughs> us on the day, um, yeah. everything else went went um, went really really well. It really did, and and you're right. I feel like it did feel an important thing to happen, and there was a sense of a little bit of pride watching it. You know, out of all of the marathon majors that were cancelled, the fact that London managed and you guys managed to actually make it to make it happen and make what turned out to be some thrilling racing as well on on the day. So in terms of that that field, you know, you were saying with breaking two, you were putting together about forty forty or so paces. There were about forty or so in the elite fields respectively and i imagine with no competitive racing going on people were probably quite keen to get involved with the race did you have people sort of biting your arm off to get a place yeah well the the, the key thing initially was to to, to really try and reconfirm the same field that we had in in april yeah. in, in the october race because at the time when we we postponed the event you know all the other marathons in the autumn were still going ahead you know of boston course. was moved it was moving it was going ahead new york and berlin and everything as well so um it wasn't so much later into the summer that obviously those events got got cancelled um but we you know we were um, we managed to confirm pretty much all the same field that we had in april for for the october race and uh yeah there there were others that that came into the field you know there were other athletes who decided that they would wouldn't run a marathon in in 2020 and would and would wait till till 2021 you know we we managed to um work closely with with the world governing body world athletics to um have the race included within the qualification window for tokyo olympics which enabled a good group of athletes to to try and get the qualifying time for for tokyo next year so that included British athletes as well as, you know, many European athletes and others as well. So, you know, we, we almost created, you know, we, we created this Olympic qualifying group within the race itself because mm-hmm. it was the only real opportunity for, for athletes this time of year to get the qualifying time for, for Tokyo next year because, you know, maybe Valencia Marathon is due to go ahead on the 6th of December, if that goes ahead. And then there's no real big um swing marathons next year at all if any so um you know it's probably was the the best and the only opportunity for athletes to try and achieve a qualifying time so there was that element you know you've got the very front end of the race the very best athletes in the world where you've got a group of athletes uh, that are trying to achieve the qualifying time as well so you almost felt a, a responsibility almost to give those those athletes that opportunity to have an event that would allow them to be able to qualify. And in terms of the GB qualifiers, you had a, a you, well, you had Samo pacing them. Yeah, he was yeah, taking yeah, them out yeah. for a two eleven was the, the the qualifying yeah, time that the, they were going. Yeah, for? it's a two eleven thirty was the, was the, the the men's qualifying time. And uh, you know, obviously over the years I've you know, worked with Mo in terms of you know being the track of events and the Diamond League events mm. which are organised and. Uh, um yeah we used to race each other many many years ago so mm-hmm. um and we were just sort of talking and uh, i'd been up at an altitude in in front with some of the british athletes and uh he said hey i wouldn't mind doing some some pacing in in london help these guys out and uh you know obviously with shorter races not much much else going on he was he was back in in the uk in london so i said great you know come in and help the 211 guys 211 guys and uh amazing and that's you know, and uh, you know, we never really sort of you know said look, Mo, you can get a get halfway, 
you know, 65 minutes for you is going to be a pretty much a breeze, you know, when you, mm-hmm. when you can run inside 60 minutes for a half. And uh, <laughs> uh, he said, yeah, I said, you know, go, go as far as you want to go. And I, but, I, you know, knowing Mo, I knew you'd get into it, get, get really excited and enjoy it. And he would go for much longer than, than halfway. And, and he did. He went mm-hmm. pretty much to 30, 30K in the end. So um, um, he re- really enjoyed it. So, which was great. And was great, great for those athletes because, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to get, world-class paces mm. you know it was, it was it was it was hard when we did 159 you and you got the option there where you're changing them in and out all the time because you know you're not you're not working within the in the let's call it the formal rules of a sport where paces are coming in and out paces need to stay within in the mm. event in the race and um <clears throat> you know to have someone like mo there pacing and and others that were in there pacing as well um in same same in, in the in the women's race it's mm. um it's a real benefit to, to those athletes so it, it was great worked really well a couple of guys you know johnny miller and, and ben connor yeah. both get the, the qualifying time which was great in those conditions um we'll get them hopefully selected for um for, for tokyo next year so, so yeah. um yeah absolutely so you know it was, it, uh, that was an important element of the race to have you know, the opportunity for those athletes um, as well as obviously the opportunity for the guys at, at the very front end. And speaking of the guys at the front, because obviously you, you're having to weigh up the responsibility of giving the GB athletes the qualifying times, but also putting on an event as well, I suppose, and putting on a, on a show, uh, uh, something with a bit of drama um, and a bit of real competition. And obviously people were really excited going in uh, for, the, for the head-to-head between Kipchoge and Beckley. So what was that like with him pulling out sort of a few days before? Was there a little bit of a, a little bit of disappointment from your end that he wouldn't, you wouldn't get the showdown that people have been so excited about? Yeah, of course it's, you know, it's end of day, you're always looking to, to, to put the best, best event together and um, create these sort of um, memorable moments really yeah. in terms of yeah, head to head and everything. And obviously it was, a, it was a head to head that you know, pretty much the world was, was wanting to see. They wanted to see it in April. They couldn't, um and and uh, we managed to 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 put it together for for october but yeah we just look it's, it's like anything it's you know athletes get um injured or anything so it's just um it's the nature of of elite sport and uh of course it was it was disappointing for us to 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 have elliot i'm sorry um Kenanisa pull out so so close mm-hmm. to the race um you yeah, know these things happen um yeah. You, you you can't you can't legislate for that at all. It just mm. uh, it just it's just the nature of, of of the beast at the end of the day. And uh, see that head to head again. Uh, who knows? You know, we we may never see that. Um, we'll we would you know we were delighted that we we're able to potentially create the opportunity there for it to happen. Um, you know, it didn't happen. It, it might happen again. It might happen next year. Might might be in London. Might be somewhere else. Who who mm. knows? I don't think at the end. It didn't take away from from the race because it was Not still a, a, a fantastic race. Um, yeah, you know, it, it might have ended up being a completely different type of race anyway with mm. with with both those two athletes in there. So um, we just we just don't know. But yeah, of course, that disappointing. But th- these things happen. That's that's just yeah. elite sport. And the races themselves, even even without that, they still in both the men's and the women's still had their real thrilling dramatic moments in in both i mean sarah hall with that incredible comeback in the women's and then the sort of realization in the men's of of kipchoge sort of falling back and then the the sprint finish at the end i mean that must have been thrilling to to watch yeah of course you yeah you always want some some excitement um within in the races yeah we we knew yeah with the conditions it wasn't going to be a day for for fast times or records even though the women's race was 
pretty much till halfway when on sort of you know women's only world record pace but you know it, it wasn't it wasn't about that it was about just having a, a competitive um a race and uh you know Bridget Cosco on the women's is obviously a fantastic athlete just for Sarah Hall to to, to come through like that and uh with that sort of you know that sprint finish at the, at the end of the race was was great and um that's the sort of story that, that you, you like to see within within the races, and it was it was great, you know. And she was somebody that that came in quite late on, you know, was looking for an opportunity to, to race. Obviously, couldn't race in any of the US marathons, um, but because London was the only big marathon happening, then yeah, that was an opportunity for her. So it was great that that Sarah came across, and uh, really pleased for her that that she ran so well, and uh, you know, got herself up onto to the podium there. So. Yeah, that was that was it was great to see. And in some of the men's race, you know, it wasn't about, you know, we lost the head to head with with Kenanisa. It wasn't about as soon as the race started off, you knew it wasn't a day for running fast times. They weren't going at the tempo that that was going to bring them into a you know a, a world record type pace. So, and it ended up being a really competitive race with you know mm. for a long 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 time, you know, ten or, or more guys together. And even in the last couple of laps, you know, six seven guys really. You know, racing it out, and you know, who'd have thought? I mean, sprint finish for the end of the marathon mm, coming down the mile, which was which was great. So that made it really exciting. You know, you're not looking at the times there. You're, again, you're just looking at this, this was a was a memorable and, and and fantastic race. And in terms of prior to getting them to that racing start, you were incorporating like new technology as well, weren't you? In terms of like where the athletes where they were based and stuff, they were using something called bump technology in order to keep them COVID secure. Can you sort of go through a little bit about logistically what what else was sort of put on your plate with all the COVID measures leading up to the race? Yeah, of course. So we had to, you know, we had to basically put a, a protocol in place um, for, for for COVID testing, which was one of the key elements of getting the permission for the, for the event. So we had all the athletes tested in their country of origin four days before they travelled into into London. We had everybody tested on their arrival into London. So we had a testing centre set up with one of our partners, Abbott, at, to the, at the hotel. And then we tested everybody again um, on the Friday before the marathon. So And that included all the staff, elite team staff working within the athletes um, hotel and, and even the hotel staff itself. So we had to create this... Um, as you probably know, this sort of biosecure mm. bubble. So we had a, an exclusive use hotel um, outside of London, not far from, from Heathrow Airport. And we had the athletes training within the grounds of the hotel. The grounds had about sort of 40 acres and uh, the athletes were, were training within the grounds. We had yeah, a very secure venue with security guarding the venue so people couldn't come in and break the bubble and obviously go out as well. Um, and then within the within the hotel itself, obviously we, we still had to sort of you know, maintain um, the, the two meters sort of social distancing. And the way we did that was we um, used this sort of bump technology, which was basically a device that everybody wore. And when you were within sort of two meters of somebody, the device used to sort of um, flash a, a blue and, and make a beep. And, and the longer that you were in that two meter, the extremely big sports and, 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 and major championships, which are going to be coming up in, in, in the UK. In, in the summer major sporting events and are now you know wanting to speak to to us and, and understand what, what we did because you know they, they've seen it's possible it can be yeah. done and uh, they want to be able to, to do that as well it's a, it is amazing and i think 
it is so important to see that you know as a as a sporting fan myself and as the public to see these events go ahead because it is such an inspiring thing to watch and like you say if that can bleed into other industries and allow them to go ahead then i think if if running or mass participation events or, or the kind of thing that you organize can be the at the forefront of that I, I just think that's really exciting and a real kind of a hopeful thing for the future you know myself as as an actor the theater industry is being completely awesome. and utterly decimated because of the model that we have means that we have to have full houses for, for the whole yep. thing they have to be full yep. so to see events like london go ahead and to see you guys use that technology to its full potential and have such success stories and still put on things that are compelling and exciting and, and great races it's it's really really inspiring um i'm going to leave it there but just to say thank you so much for all of that detail and information and for, i think it's going to be really fascinating for people to listen to thank you so much for for coming no, on the show you're you're, you're, you're welcome Big thank you to Spencer for coming on and sharing some of his incredible insight into his own professional career and the insane scale that is organising huge sporting events and and how encouraging to hear with the work that he and his team are doing that sporting events are managing to go ahead. Next week on The Big Run... I came back on and was like, oh, it just feels like a sprain. And it felt like a sprain, it didn't feel like a tear and I'd never experienced anything like that and because obviously adrenaline, but then when it did go and it was a complete rupture. It literally, it didn't go off like a gun sound. It was, it was like, I just knew, it was almost like, I've gone. It was mm. so almost innocuous, but searingly painful, I just knew. For more news, clips, information, and guest previews, you can follow us on Twitter at The Big Run Pod or on Instagram at The Big Run Podcast. And if you want to keep an eye on my mileage, you can follow me on Instagram as well at Danny Runs Some. Until then, get out there and get running.